number of years ago, I helped plant a church in Charlotte, in North Carolina, in the States, from the previous church. That, are you from Charlotte? No. Oh, mate, <laughs> seriously. I've never met someone from Charlotte. Um, helped plant a church in Charlotte, and my job basically was I went with the team, and my job was to gather as many 20s and 30s as I could possibly gather. The, the idea was it was kind of um, a church that basically was built on a group of families. So it was a bunch of families, young kids, but no young adults. So my, I kind of had this arduous task of just taking people out for coffee and for beer and trying to kind of build up a bit of a community. And over the months, we gathered quite a group to this church and it was a really beautiful thing that God was doing amongst us. We met in the evening and um, we worshipped together, we read the Bible together and then we ate together and God started to doing some amazing things amongst us and new people were becoming Christians, people were coming through the doors who their mates had just invited and they came to faith as a result and so all the kind of signs of the spirit were there and it was really exciting. Um, A couple of months into this, a guy walked through the back of the door and it was quite clear from the moment we saw this guy that he was a little bit different to the other crowd that we kind of been gathering. Um, he had a black eye, so he'd obviously been punched. His nose was way out of place. He smelt really bad. He'd obviously been wearing um, the same clothes for a long, long time. And he came in and he sat at the back and he had his eyes kind of down on the floor, didn't look at anyone, didn't speak to anyone. And so as this small group, he was quite an obvious presence among us. And the beautiful thing about this group was these guys made it their mission basically to try and involve this guy in what we were doing. Um, kind of a smallish group, 20 to 30 people, so it was really easy to do. And as we got to know this guy's story, his name was Amadeus, um, we found out that he had a tragic background. Basically, his dad used to beat him as a kid, and then eventually dad left home, left just his mum and him and his brother. Um, Because of all that happened in his upbringing, how horrific it was, his behaviour was playing up as he went up into his teens. Eventually, his mum literally just kicked him out on the street because she couldn't cope with him anymore. And so Amadeus was in his late teens, and he was living on the street. And he wasn't street smart when we met him. Like, he didn't really know um, how to hold himself on the street. And so as a result, every day he would get beaten up. And he'd come to church and he'd have new bruises. He'd be battered in a different way. And as, as a group, like we just almost just thought we really need to try our best to try and love this guy. Now, we had um, a guy who had become a Christian. So basically, Charlotte is a huge banking city in the States. And there was this guy that was on this banking scheme as an associate going, making his way through. And he was basically raised in a cult. So like his parents were part of a cult. And as a result, he completely turned his back on any kind of organized religion. Didn't want to do anything to do with religion. But one day, he was handed by another mate who worked in a bank this flyer for our church, for this service. And all it said at the top was religion-free church. And he was like, well, I should probably try that out. So he came along. As soon as he walked through the door, he experienced the Holy Spirit for the first time, instantly gave his faith to Jesus, became a Christian. And he was full of the joys of conversion. You guys would have met people like this. They are so happy and they tend to talk to everyone, however inappropriate is everyone about Jesus. This was this guy. His name was Drew. And so he decided it would be a good idea because I actually lived with Drew in the end. We got to know each other fairly well. And um, we actually started renting what I like to think of as a frat house because... I basically wanted to live this fraternity dream in the States that I hadn't got to have in the UK. And we bought this, like, rented this huge house. It looked like a mini White House. Five guys lived in there. Pool table in the basement. Huge parties. It was brilliant. And then Drew said, OK, guys, I've got a great idea. We need to invite Amadeus to come and live with us. 
And so, you know, we'd been Christians for a bit longer. We're like, oh, mate, do you sure that's a good idea? I, you know, like, I'm not sure. It's a bit different. It's a bit difficult. And he said, no, this is what we're supposed to do. It's often the new Christians that teach you how to be Christian. He's like, no, he's going to come and live with us. So Amadeus came and lived with us. And it had its awkward moments. Um, there was a brilliant time when I got uh, downstairs after obviously sleeping downstairs in the morning and I'm trying to make breakfast and I put a bagel in because I ate bagels every day because that's what they do in America. And I went in the fridge, got the butter out and I was looking around trying to find a knife to spread the butter and there were no knives left in the kitchen. They totally disappeared. And I kind of thought, what's going on with the knives? Eventually I found Drew in his room. He'd barricaded himself in his room and he'd hidden all the knives under the mattress. I was like, Drew, what are you doing? Apparently what had happened was he'd fallen asleep in front of the TV in the middle of the night. He woke up at three in the morning to find Amadeus standing over the sofa watching him sleep. And it terrified him, so he hid all the knives. <clears throat> anyway... There were moments like that that were really awkward, but there were also amazing, incredible moments. We watched Amadeus go from someone who was incredibly hard, who was incredibly hard to get through to, to softening day by day by day. And eventually, we began to hear more of his story. We began to become really good friends with Amadeus. He was coming regularly to church. He started to engage in worship. And then the most amazing thing happened at the end. My mate Drew basically found out that Amadeus was obsessed with horses. He loved horses. Like during the talks, he'd sit at the back and he'd sketch pictures of horses. And so Drew thought, wouldn't it be great to kind of get Amadeus back on his feet again? Let's get him a job working with horses. And so he literally found a farm on the outskirts of Charlotte, the city where we were living, and approached him and said, look, I've got this guy. Do you need anyone to help with the horses? They happened to need someone to help with the horses, and he got Amadeus this job and took him out there, and he had this incredible job. He literally came alive as a result. And it's an incredible example of what it looks like if a church genuinely functions like a family functions like a family and is able to take in the outcast, able to take in the lost, able to take in the hurting and literally adopt them as part of your family. Now, the usual thing to say after a story like that is, could you all just be a little bit more like Drew? Come on, like what's the matter with you? Be more like Drew. Can you be a bit nicer to homeless people? Can you be nicer to the outcast? But actually, I think if we do that and if I say that tonight, we miss a really important step. And the really important step about that story that we need to realise is this. Every single one of us in this room, without exception, are just as hurting, we're just as lonely, we're just as battered, we're just as bruised as Amadeus in that story. The truth is we're better at hiding it, aren't we? You all look like you know what you're doing, you all look pretty well put together. Amadeus, it was on full show, but the truth is, underneath the surface, although it doesn't quite take the horrific circumstances that he was under, and that, are, that is a unique set of circumstances, we are actually emotionally just as battered. There's a great example um, that's always used on alpha causes, and what happens is, <clears throat> someone gets up and says, listen, imagine you die... And you're in a cinema, and you get into the cinema, and there's a bunch of seats around, and you walk in, you sit down, you take your seat. No one else is in the cinema uh, screening apart from you. You sit down, credits come up, music starts. You realise that they're basically about to show you a film of your life. Everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, worst bit, everything you've ever thought. You have to sit through the whole lot, right? So you sit through this film. It's excruciating, it's uncomfortable. There's moments where it's good, but most of the time it's awful. You get to the end of it, it finishes, you think, thank Thank goodness that's over. 
And so you get up and you think, can I please go to heaven now? And you get towards the back of the door. Suddenly the doors fling open and in kind of charge a ton of people. And the people coming into the cinema room is everybody who starred in the life that was shown on screen. Everything you've ever said, everything you've ever done, everything you've ever thought, and all the people that have interacted with you in your life in the same cinema screening. And you sit there, and it's excruciating. Now, normally that makes us feel incredibly guilty, and we think, oh, goodness, I can't believe I did that to that person. Imagine having the thoughts that you have about some people displayed on the screen in front of the people you thought them about. It's a horrible experience. But here's the thing I want to say about that example or metaphor, whatever it is. I reckon if we sat through that, I think it would be incredibly painful because we would also see on that screen every time we've been hurt, every time we've been let down, every time a really close friend has stabbed us in the back, every time we felt alone, we felt isolated, every time we've woke up in the morning and we felt, I can't just go on with my day, it's too painful, every time we go to bed at night and we say, actually, I'm not even sure my life has any meaning, I think it would be incredibly painful for those reasons as well. And we'd feel really vulnerable. And it's uncomfortable because we don't like weakness. In fact, we've been taught, haven't we, really well, in fact, to hide weakness and vulnerability, to almost just ignore it. Classic example is Instagram. I don't want to kind of bash Instagram. I actually think Instagram's great. But let's be honest, on Instagram, we're just getting someone's highlight highlight reel, aren't we? So we're getting like this incredible um, day on holiday. We're getting this amazing lunch that's kind of displayed for all to see. We're getting these incredibly... Here's a picture of me doing something really meaningful. Like I'm on a march against poverty. Like, look, everyone, here I am. Brilliant highlights of your life. What you never see on Instagram is here's me, a selfie in the morning drinking coffee struggling to wake up and go to work. Here's the meal deal I bought from Sainsbury's because I had to work at my desk today. Here I am at the end of my day, about to go to bed, absolutely wasted, literally just watching Netflix, binging Netflix because I want to forget about my life. You don't get those things on Instagram. For good reason. It would be awful, awful viewing. Don't do it. Even if you're not on social media, right? So someone asks you, how are you doing? You don't say to them, well, actually, I'm having a bit of a midlife crisis. Not the kind of midlife crisis where I'm buying a new car or a motorbike or learning a hobby. I am genuinely worried about if there's any meaning in my life. In fact, I'm starting to think I might be depressed because there's no way that everything I've done up until this point makes any sense or has had any kind of purpose. You never say that because they don't want to know. They just want you to say you're busy because they're busy because they're going on their way. We don't do it, right? Vulnerability is actually been bashed out of us. Why? Well, it's because weakness isn't celebrated. There's no room for it. We don't have time for it. It's survival of the fittest. How much more so for us in London as well? But the truth is, the sad truth is, this actually has catastrophic consequences on us and our relationships. Neurobiologically, we, every single one of us in this room, we're created for connection. And connection with each other is impossible unless there's vulnerability. Unless we're able to relate to each other where there's weaknesses on show and we're able to help each other, not just see the highlight reel, but also see the downtimes as well. And... The reason or the problem with no connection, and this is starting to become a serious problem in this country, is that there's a good bunch of us that are actually lonely as a result because we don't have meaningful relationships. We don't have any meaningful 
connection. Um, did anyone see in the news recently they appointed a minister of loneliness? Did anyone see that? Literally appointing a minister for loneliness. The government did a government-backed survey, right, that surveyed tons of people, and they found this. 86% of millennials, this is people in their 20s and the 30s, you lot, 86% of you in the prime of your life doing exactly what you feel you should be doing in the best city in the world, 86% of us feel lonely on a consistent basis. It's catastrophic. They reckon that loneliness is going to be the next biggest health epidemic in our country. That's why they've created a ministerial role for it. 2017 study that says that lacking social connection is the equivalent of smoking 15 cigarettes a day, health-wise, physical health. This is a genuine study. I'm not making this up. Depression and anxiety are being increasingly linked to loneliness. Loneliness is a serious problem. It's because there's no connection, because we're not engaged in real relationships. So what do we do about it? Well, I believe that church should be the antidote to loneliness. One of my favorite verses in the Bible is in Psalm 68, verse 6. And it just says this. It says, God sets the lonely in families. God is in the business of setting the lonely in families. And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Obviously, there the context is of Israel and almost a literal family. This is also a New Testament thing. Do you know the most common metaphor for the church in the New Testament is that of a family? Here's some amazing stats. 139 times um, in the New Testament, uh, the word brother appears. 63 times the word father appears. 17 times the word son appears. 39 times children. 19 times inheritance, which is obviously to do with family stuff. In Paul's 13 letters alone, 277 family references can be found. The overwhelming sense when you read the New Testament is that church is supposed to be like a family. So if church is supposed to be like a family, what does that look like? Well, the best example is actually of looking at Jesus and his disciples. Remember, Jesus spent three years with these guys. Twelve of them traveled around, and they were as close as they could possibly get. They would have slept in similar... They would have slept in the same room as each other. They would have traveled together. They spent every single waking minute together. In many ways, it was like a family. In fact, there's that moment in the Gospels, isn't there, where Jesus' mother and brothers come, and the disciples say to Jesus, Jesus, your mom and your brother are here and he says they're not my mother mum and bro like I, you are my family which is really harsh I think because his mum traveled all that way and you should always <laughs> recognize your mum but he said it so the point is you're supposed to be like a family church is supposed to be like a family so what does it look like for church to be like a family I'm just going to read a short excerpt of Jesus interacting with his disciples so this is John 13 and it's in the lead up to Jesus's death And he's having like a final meal with his disciples. And it's a pretty eventful meal. So basically he's just washed everyone's feet. And then we'll pick up from chapter 13, verse 21. He said, after um, Jesus has said this, he was troubled in his spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. It's huge news. First time they've heard that. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of one of them he meant. 
One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which I love because it's the guy that wrote the gospel, right? So he describes himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. I mean, there's no limit to this guy. In fact, if you read his letters, he literally refers to himself the whole time. One of the best things you can do is wake up in the morning, every morning, look in the mirror and say, Jesus loves everyone, but I'm his favorite. (laughs) If you do that, you'll be a bit like John. Work for him. It's good. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple, meaning himself. He's also a bit like Trump, refers to himself in third person. One of the disciples, Simon Peter motioned to him and said, ask him which one he means. Go on, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it's the one whom I'll give this piece of bread when I've dipped it in the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him, harsh. So Jesus told him, what you're about to do, do it quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him, since Judas had charge of the money. Some thought Jesus was telling him, so Jesus scuttles off to do what he's going to do, blah, 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 a bit more. And then Jesus says to the guys remaining, he says, my children, I'll be with you only a little longer. He's talking about the cross. You will look for me. And just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. And then this is crucial, this bit. He says this, a new command I give to you. So Jesus hadn't given that many commands. Basically, he said, I've come to fulfill the law. So he didn't say, I've come to replace the law and give you different law. I've come to fulfill it. He was asked to kind of summarize it at one point, And he said, you could summarize the whole law by basically saying, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. But he didn't really give many new commands. He tended to use the Old Testament and reinterpret it in the light of himself. But here's a new command. And he says it here. So it's obviously really important because it's a new one. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And then Simon Peter asked him, Lord, where are you going? He's just told him. Jesus replied, where I'm going, you can't follow now, but you will follow later. Peter, Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you, which is a joke because he doesn't. Then Jesus answered, will you really, Jesus knows, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Now, here's the thing about the disciples. So that's kind of Jesus' family, right? And the thing that we need to know about family is two things that I want to ram home about family. And the first thing is that if we want to be a church family, if we want to exist as a family that God can literally draw the lonely into, then the first thing we need to do as a church is make ourselves known. Make ourselves knowable. And that's not just the highlight reel, not just the good stuff. It's all of the other stuff as well. And this is clearly what was happening with the disciples. These guys were an absolute nightmare. Judas, worst first, right? This guy, he had a problem with greed, basically. Just Remember, Judas would have walked around with Jesus for three years. He would have been best mates with all of them. He shared rooms with them. He basically shared his life with them. He would have gone out with the other disciples and he would have seen incredible miracles done in Jesus' name. Jesus, um, Judas has a serious problem with money and with greed and in the end actually sells Jesus to the arch enemies so that he can get 30 shackles of silver. He is a complete screw-up. He's the worst one, but the rest of them are just as bad. What about Peter? I reckon if anyone told me that I was about to do something that was actually going to cause a lot of shame in my life, if someone explicitly told me I was about to do something, I would probably try and avoid doing it. Peter was told, and in the next chapter, he goes and does it. 
He's even told by God, if there's one person that could probably tell you and you'd avoid it, it would be God. Peter was a complete screw-up. Even John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, he was a nightmare. So he had this nickname along with his brother, James. He was called the Sons of Thunder, the two of them together, which doesn't mean they had digestive problems. It meant that actually they had genuine, serious anger problems. There's a brilliant moment where um, they're doing ministry and they go past Samaria and Jesus sends his disciples into Samaria to get some food and bring it back. And they go into Samaria and the Samaritans say, on your bike, you're not having anything from us. And they go back to Jesus and say, Jesus, they won't give us anything. And then, Je- and then John, who wrote this um, gospel, John goes, Jesus, I've had a brilliant idea. Why don't we ask God to send down fire from heaven and destroy the whole town? And then it says, Jesus rebuked him. Don't you wish you could actually know what he said? He probably was like, you absolute idiot. Have you literally listened to nothing? I've been teaching you for three years. John was a nightmare, a total numpty. All of them were. And here's the truth. When we're in family together, when we live our lives together, when everything's on display, there is absolutely no hiding our weaknesses. The good, the bad, the ugly is all on display. But the problem is, to be a family, we need to make ourselves fully known. We can't have meaningful relationship unless we give people access to our lives, complete access, not just access to the bits that we want to give. And this is why the second thing to notice about Jesus and his disciples and family is so important. The second thing to notice is in verse 34, and it relates to that new command that he gave him. He says, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. You're a part of my family if you love one another. And then he repeats it again later when he's talking about the vine and the branches in chapter 15. He says, my command is this, love each other. And he develops it a bit. He says, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Here's the important thing. In order to make family work and to be fully known to each other, first and foremost and most importantly, we need to have unconditional, unmerited love as our driving force, right at the center of everything. What's Jesus talking about there? He's talking about the cross. He's talking about the point at which he will die and literally take upon himself every single weakness, every single hurt, every single vulnerability, everything that we've done to other people that genuinely hurts them, everything that people have done to us that genuinely hurts them. He's literally taking it all upon himself on the cross and he's destroying the power of it once and for all so that we can live in that communion, that unconditional love with our Father. And unless we have that, we're never going to be able to make each other. Because what we'll do, we'll just get fed up with each other. We won't be able to do it. Our weaknesses are too strong. We look at each other and we think, we're idi- like, you're an idiot. You're idiots. Like, I'm an idiot. We're all idiots. <laughs> Unless you're able to unconditionally love each other, you're not going to be able to be like a family. So the key question, actually, to be honest, is how do we do that? Well, the first step is we make ourselves fully known to God. Don't even try and do it to each other until you've done this. There's really no point. Here's a great psalm that kind of illustrates what this looks like. Famous psalm, Psalm 139. 
This is David talking about his relationship with God. He says, you search me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. You hem me in behind and before. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Then he talks about how far can I, I can't get anywhere and be outside of your presence. You created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. And then there's this weird bit that often we skip out because it's a bit ugly. But he then says, if only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me. You who are bloodthirsty, they speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you or bore those who rebel? It's brilliant. I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Would you kill them? And then he says, this is brilliant, at the end he's like, search me God, know my heart, (laughs) test me and know my anxious thoughts, see if there's any offensive way in me. (laughs) Brilliant psalm. Why is that a brilliant psalm? It's a brilliant psalm because there's the good, there's the bad, and there's the ugly in his relationship with God. And he knows he's able to be like that with God, completely open, have full access because of one verse. One verse in here, and it's verse 5. Where he says, Lord, you lay your hand upon me. That's the key to this whole psalm. What does that mean? Well, in the Hebrew, that literally means God blesses him. Lays his hand, and to bless means to speak well of. David knew what it was like to be unconditionally loved. And that's how he was able to have that kind of relationship with God. So the only way we're going to be family as a church is if we make ourselves known to God. And then the only way we're going to be able to make ourselves known to each other and do it in a way that enables us to love each other unconditionally, because that's really hard, by the way, is if we do something Jesus talks about in the context of those few verses I read from chapter 13 to 15 of John's Gospel. In the middle of giving him the new command to love each other, he has this uh, metaphor he talks about, about the vine and the branches. He says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Unless you remain in me, you will achieve nothing. You'll be fruitless. You won't bear any fruit. Remain in me. Remain in me. That's the whole point of that little section. And then he gives them the command again. He says, my command is this, love each other. Why does he do that? Because he knows unless you do step one, you're never going to be able to do step two. Unless you remain in the vine, you stay connected to Jesus, you're never going to be able to love each other unconditionally. I was on a um, leaders weekend um, a few years ago from my old church and we invited this guy to speak who was pretty out there. In fact, he was really odd. Like He'd spoken a few times at our church and he'd do strange things. He basically would try and follow the spirit when he spoke. But what that really meant was he didn't prepare a sermon. So he'd rock up. And one time he'd be at church and he picked up a biscuit at the cafe at the back of church. And he came up on stage and he placed the biscuit down on the stage and he pointed at it. And 600 people pointed at it. And he said, look at that biscuit. And he's just got everyone looking at the biscuit. Nice biscuit. For like five minutes. And then he did his talk. But he'd lost us by that point. He was mad. Anyway, we thought it would be a good idea to invite him on this leaders weekend. And he read this passage out. 20 people in a room. And then he eyeballed us for an uncomfortable amount of time. He literally eyeballed us. Like went around the room. And all he did was he said, stay in The vine. And then just kept eyeballing us. (laughs) And then a couple of minutes later he'd go, stay 
in the vine. Did that for 15 minutes. Honestly, one of the most awkward talks I've ever sat through, but actually the only talk I've ever remembered. (laughs) This guy, this guy really knew how important it was. He knew that actually apart from Jesus, we can do nothing. There is no chance in hell that we'll ever be able to love each other unconditionally unless we remain in him, we stay in the vine. Final thing, what will it look like if we all do this? This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. 1 Corinthians 12. Actually, 2 Corinthians 12. Paul's talking about weakness. This is the whole thing of vulnerability and weakness. He talks about this particular thorn. um, And he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away. But Jesus said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, Paul says, and this is mad, he says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power will rest on me. So Paul talks about not hiding weakness, not covering up vulnerability, not literally just kind of shuffling it under the carpet and making sure no one can see it. Paul talks about not even kind of just casually talking about it. He talks about boasting in his weaknesses. Why does he do that? He does it because he knows that that's the power of the gospel. That is where the power of the gospel actually lies. That it's only because of our weakness that we're able to see the power and the grace and the unconditional love and favor of God. There's an amazing um, thing in the Greek here with this verse. Basically, when he talks about Christ's power um, resting on him, in the Greek, that actually means to be clothed with power. And that's really interesting in the context of weakness, because what does it feel like when you're weak or you're vulnerable? I don't know about you, but you feel naked. Like, I feel naked. I quite like being naked, but not that kind of naked. (laughs) Emotionally naked. You feel naked, don't you? So... What, what he's talking about there, remember Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, so um, Genesis 3, what happens after the fall and they, they sin? They cover each other up, right? They feel naked. What happens? God's walking along and they're like, oh no, you can't see me, so they run behind a bush and then God, they're basically hiding from God. What happens when our vulner- everything in us, when we're vulnerable and when we're weak, makes us want to hide, makes us want to cover up, makes us want to run? Do you know what Paul's saying here? He's saying, I'm happy being naked. I absolutely love it. I love being naked because I know that when I'm naked, God will clothe me in power. And that's what it will look like if we're all able to do that as a family. Family is one of the most powerful things in the church right now. I honestly believe that we will see some sort of revival if the church can get this idea of being a family again. Because it's what people are longing for. It's what they're searching for.